Well, my name is Jonathan. I know Andy introduced me. Thank you, Andy. Uh, I'm the pastor here. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, we're really happy that you're here. Uh, we like it when new people come. Um, I forgot to share kind of my uh, my favorite reason to kind of attend a small group. Like my favorite thing about small groups, it's the snacks. I really enjoy the snacks. Amen. <laughs> there you go. So today we're continuing uh, our sermon series, Meeting Jesus and Matthew, but we're really in part two. So we started with part one, who is Jesus? Uh, and we kind of went through his birth, Jesus is a king, Jesus is God, he's the son of God. And today we're getting into part two. Uh, part two is going to be a little bit longer, uh, about eight weeks. Uh, and then in part three, right before Easter, we'll get to what did Jesus do, and that's really the Easter story. Uh, but for part two, we're studying uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So what did Jesus teach? Well, he gave this very famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. So we're just going to start right here. I think it's a good place to start. Why don't I pray for us, and then uh, I'll begin. Father God, thank you for this opportunity to talk about your word. Uh, would you open our hearts for us to hear it in the way that you want us to hear it? Uh, would the words that I say be pleasing uh, to you, Lord? Uh, would the meditations of my heart uh, be an offering before you? Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Mountain, uh, and I was curious if any of you have ever climbed a mountain. Now, I could probably use sermon illustrations talking about mountains every single week because I'm from Colorado. Uh, but I, I usually refrain, but not this week. I'm going to use a sermon illustration from a mountain. Uh, so in August, I went on a hike uh, with uh, a couple people from Cornerstone, and we hiked Mount Monadnock uh, in New Hampshire. Just by show of hands, who has climbed Mount Monadnock? All right, so quite a few of you. All right, that's good. So you can relate to this. Uh, as you climb that mountain, maybe you like to take some pictures, uh, but what I've noticed from taking uh, photos on this hike is that most people wait until they're at the summit. Uh, they take the photos from the top. Of course, I took photos on the way up and got a lot of strange looks from my hiking partners. But the reason we take it from the top is the view. You can see for miles and miles and miles. And it was August, so it was really beautiful. It was green. You could see uh, kind of water in the distance, lakes. Uh, it was really wonderful. Climbing mountains, going for hikes, are a great way to kind of clear your mind, to get a new perspective on life. Because once you get to the top, it kind of opens your eyes to everything that's around, how beautiful creation is, how beautiful the world is. People drive from all over New England to go hiking in New Hampshire. Uh, and today, and that day, I got to experience it. And the cool thing is that when you're on the top, like your problems do feel a little farther away. Life seems a little simpler, a, a little uh, more beautiful. And one of the reasons that I think Jesus uh, took his kind of uh, followers, so he took his disciple or disciples, so those are followers, he took them up on this mountain uh, to give them a fresh perspective, to give them a new view of life, of, of what it means to follow God. You see, he took them up on a mount. And... Uh, 
And if you look in the, the story of Israel, you can look back about a thousand years, a little bit over that, and you see, uh, so before the birth of Jesus, there was a similar man. He was a prophet. His name was Moses. And he also climbed a mountain called Mount Sinai to do a similar thing, to give the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, what's called the law, which is kind of how to follow God, how to obey God. And so a thousand years later, Jesus is giving a similar kind of law, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's new. It's like a culmination of the old law. And, and Jesus is saying, this, what I'm about to preach, what I'm about to teach you is going to change your perspective. Uh, all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he says to his disciples, he says to the crowd who's kind of eavesdropping, he says, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. You have heard that it was said, but, but I say this. So Jesus wants to change their perspective on life. But I don't think he does it with really a brand new law. I actually think he does it with grace. That when he takes the disciples up on this mountain, he doesn't want to give them a whole new heavy burden of what to follow. He wants to teach them about God and shower them in love and to shower them in grace. But at the same time he does this, he also teaches about God's standards and how high God's standards are. So it's kind of this mystery now, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're talking about grace, and we're talking about a change of perspective. I hope that as we go through this sermon series, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, that as we talk about some of the topics, so for the next eight weeks, we're going to talk about things like uh, murder, uh, anger, uh, adultery, divorce. Um, we're going to talk about loving your enemies, giving to the needy, prayer. We talked about prayer in the fall, um, judging others. Giving, like where to store up your treasure. These are some like everyday practical topics. And I hope that as you go through them uh, with me, with those other people who preach, that you will be challenged by God's standard, but then you'll also be amazed, amazed, just truly amazed by God's grace. So I believe grace changes our perspective. And through the Sermon on the Mount, we actually see grace changing our viewpoint roughly four different ways especially for the disciples of Jesus, his followers. See, the followers of Jesus, they are surprised by grace. I believe this is what the first 12 verses are really about, the, what we call the Beatitudes. Followers of Jesus are surprised by grace. And some people will say, you know, the Beatitudes are all about your attitude, like how you're supposed to behave. Uh, but the Beatitudes are, are really, they're blessed are statements, but another way you could translate the blessed are is congratulations to. And who do you congratulate? Well, you congratulate those people that have achieved something, or maybe if it's their birthday, you congratulate someone who's received a gift. And I want to define, like, what grace is. See, grace is receiving a gift you don't deserve. Grace is a gift, it's, it's something that is given to you. And the first four Beatitudes, I'm going to kind of structure them for us so that as we work through them, you can kind of keep track of them. The first four Beatitudes, the first four blessed are statements, describe how people are surprised by God's grace. How they're surprised by it. And then the, the next three uh, describe how we react 
to the surprise, how we respond. So I'm going to go through them pretty quickly, kind of keeping an upper level view, but I hope that you'll track with me. So the first beatitude in verse 3 tells us that the spiritually impoverished are surprised with eternal life. So to be impoverished is to really be caught. It's not just to be poor. It's to be caught in a cycle, really a system that's societal, that's economic, uh, that's personal, that represses you, that keeps you down. And there is no greater system of economic, uh, well, spiritual impoverishment than sin, than we're all caught in sin. And God gives us grace when he comes and he breaks us out of that cycle. He comes and breaks us out of that system. That is what grace is. And he does it through no effort of our own. He just comes and says, I'm going to break you out of this system that you could never have gotten out of without me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Second, the depressed and down are surprised with true hope. So to mourn, the second beatitude, uh, is really to experience deep grief on account of heartache, uh, whether you've lost a relationship, lost a loved one, uh, on account of death, certainly, but also just to mourn at like what's wrong with the world, that there's evil that's happening in the world, war, famine, uh, there's just bad things that are happening, happening, and so that is really what it means to mourn. And grace is when God comes into these situations, but really when, he, when God entered into our existence and solved the problem. So God has not told us why these bad things happen, but he has offered a solution. That solution is Jesus on the cross, where Jesus defeated sin. He offered forgiveness. He's defeated death. He has provided a long-term solution to the presence of evil in the world. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's nothing more comforting than the cross. Third, the humble are surprised with the highest praise. The humble are surprised with the highest praise. So it talks about blessed are the meek. Well, to be meek is to really like lay down your rights. It's to be humble. It's to not be domineering, to say, I must always get my way. I must always win. It's the opposite of pride. But grace is the sure hope that all who humble themselves before God, that put their faith in Christ, will one day kind of be enthroned. That God will come and take kind of the Cinderella's of the world who have put their faith in Christ and and exalt them. That is what grace does. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And fourth, the unsatisfied are surprised with lasting Contentment. So maybe some of you understand what it means not to be content. Well, this one is an encouragement to us. Because those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, well, they are kind of those of us who burn with a desire to like please God, to know God, to love God, but aren't exactly sure how. You hunger for righteousness. You thirst for righteousness, but you're not sure how. Grace is when God sends the Holy Spirit, when Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to enter into you and help you understand the Bible. The Holy Spirit helps you understand how to walk in a way that pleases God, how to to walk on the paths of righteousness. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So the first four Beatitudes are really kind of surprises. They're God's surprise gifts to to us, people that don't deserve them, but we receive them from God. The next three are how we react to the surprise. So uh, my, my brother, as he got out of the Marine Corps, like he was in his early 20s, his girlfriend at the time, uh, who became his wife, uh, she threw him a surprise birthday party. Uh, and I don't know why she did it, uh, because they're both introverts, like they don't really like large crowds of people, uh, but that's what she did. She threw him a surprise birthday party, and it was my job to get my brother to the party without him figuring it out. And so we drove there. It was her parents' house, and I got out of the car and ran inside. I made some excuse that, like, I needed to get inside really quick. And, uh, and when I walked in, and, like, around this corner, like, everyone jumped out and yelled surprise to the wrong guy, to, to me. Uh, and it was interesting because they were all like looking at my face. They wanted to see my reaction. How was I going to respond to this gift? How was my brother going to respond? That's what they, they really cared about. And, it, of course, it did surprise him. So the question is, how do you respond to God's gift of grace? Do you reject it? Do you turn to it? Do you say, yes, Lord, I need your grace? Or, no, Lord, I'm, I'm good enough. I, I don't need your grace. Well, there are three kind of good responses to how, how we should act when we receive grace. A, B, and C. A, we show undeserved compassion because that's what Jesus did for us. So I think sometimes we don't really understand the cross. The cross is... In this life, it's certainly a kind of an instrument of death back in uh, Jesus' time. It's a serious thing. But at the cross, Jesus also went through a punishment. He, he received like the full wrath of God. We don't understand what that means. But Jesus suffered not an eternal punishment, but an infinite punishment. God poured out his wrath against Jesus. That's how much God hates sin. God really hates sin. And God poured out all of that wrath on Christ, if you're willing to trust in him, like Christ takes that wrath upon himself. So when we realize, like, Jesus had to die in order to like, satisfy God's justice, God's holiness, that should instill within our hearts a desire to show compassion to others, to show love, to show mercy to others, because, wow, look at what God has done for us through Christ on the cross. We show undeserved compassion. We didn't deserve the cross. Jesus certainly didn't deserve it. We deserve to be on the cross, but Jesus took our place. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. B, we seek God at our very core because he's given us a new core to follow him. So this is talking about blessed are the pure in heart. To be pure in heart is to love God with your heart, soul, mind, strength, to really love him with your all. I love that we're kind of reflecting on this through our foundation verse, our new one for this series. Uh, Well, the only reason that we can love God with our heart is because he takes our heart of stone, a heart that in its natural state rejects God, like our mind, our will, and he, he replaces it. He says, here's a soft heart towards me. See, God is the one who invites us into his presence by by allowing us to really put our faith in him. And one day, we will be able to enter into God's presence 
without receiving the wrath. We'll be able to stand before God face to face. We'll be in his presence. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We extend mercy and we love God from our heart. These are reactions. These are ways that we can respond. And see, we strive to bring peace to a broken world because that's our Father's line of business. So maybe some of you have seen those like trucks uh, that drive by that are usually blue-collar businesses like plumbing or carpentry, and it's like Tillman and Sons or Broadman and Sons. Our, our Father has put us into a line of work. It's called like reconciliation. It's, it's bringing healing and grace to the world. We, we do this uh, by extending physical healing, like physical compassion to others, uh, by serving the world uh, through trying to meet their needs. Uh, so uh, as, we, as we started this church plant cornerstone, we surveyed the community to try to find out what are some of the needs in the community. And I think we're still figuring that out, but we're working towards uh, doing a positive impact, serving the community. But we also bring spiritual healing by sharing the gospel, so the good news of Jesus Christ in word and in deed. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So first four blessed are statements are really what God has surprised us with, the grace. The second three are, are how we react to the surprise. And then the final two in verses 10 and 11 are really kind of how the world will often respond to us and this message of grace as we share the gospel with others. And Jesus warns us that followers of Jesus will be persecuted, rejected, turned away from. And yet Jesus says, rejoice, be glad, because your home is with me. So no matter what you go through, like the normal response when we're rejected or bullied by the world or just by anyone is to feel bad for ourselves, to kind of withdraw into ourselves. And Jesus says, no, grace changes your perspective. You can respond in a whole new way because you have my love. You're not an outcast. You're my child. Followers of Jesus are surprised by grace. What's another way it changes our perspective? Well, followers of Jesus are also seasoned with grace grace. Verse 13 says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Followers of Jesus are seasoned with grace. Now it talks about uh, being the salt of the earth. What do we know about salt? Salt is a, uh, a preservative but it also gives flavor. Now, I love having salt on my eggs. Maybe some of you can relate to this. When I was younger, when I was a child, I would usually put too much salt on my eggs, and they would be disgusting. But now as I've grown over, I've learned, like, just a second, Jonathan, don't put a lot of salt on your eggs. But it really adds to the flavor. It brings out the flavor in the eggs. I don't know what it is about salt, but it just makes it better. Now, what if the world were to say of Christians, I don't know what it is about Christians, but they just seem to make things better. Now, usually the world says, man, let's get the Christians out of here. They tend to ruin things. They ruin our lives. But that's not how it should be. 
See, Christians, when we go into things like the arts and the sciences, politics, professions, sports, we're supposed to add flavor to these things. We're supposed to make them better. And what we tend to do is we tend to go in with our salt shakers and just say, we have to like make this into a salt planet in order for it to please God. But that's not what we're supposed to do. We don't have to take movies or music or paintings and politics or anything like that and brand them with Christianity. A sunset is good without a Bible verse. But you know what? It's not wrong to want to take these things and say, Lord, I, I want to make them kind of, uh, kind of Christianize them in order to please you. God is praised by those things too. But we don't have to do those things. I think the message of the scripture says, go into these areas and make them better. Doesn't mean that we agree with everything in them. We still want to be true to our calling, true to our Savior, but we don't have to be overt about who we are all the time. I think uh, my sister-in-law actually did this recently. Uh, she just moved out to L.A., and she, she graduated from BU in screen and television, and she wrote a screenplay, uh, like a pilot episode for a TV episode, uh, and, and submitted, to, submitted it to the Humanitas uh, Award, and she is one of the top three finalists uh, and the, in, in her category. Uh, and the Humanitas Award, it's like an annual thing, and it is given to writers that explore the human experience in a way that both entertains and enlightens. And I can't say that everything that was nominated for this award, there's different categories that I agree with or I would approve of, but I think it's wonderful that someone who, uh, like an organization that is not Christian, looks at her work and says, wow, there is something significant about what she has done. She did it in a thoughtful way, and it wasn't an overtly Christian piece. Followers of Jesus are to, are to season with grace. We are to be seasoned with grace, and we're supposed to season the world with grace. We're not called to abandon the world, but we're called to leave it better than we found it. See, grace changes our perspective. It adds flavor. Followers of Jesus are surprised by grace and they're seasoned with grace. And how else does grace change our perspective? Well, followers of Jesus shine out grace. Verses 14 through 16 say this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Followers of Jesus should shine out grace. In the ancient world, the source of lighting often were like these little clay lamps that were lit with just like a, a spoonful of oil. So you had to refill them quite often. And... Uh, and if you've ever looked at a flame, I'm sure all of you have been to like a, a cookout or, uh, or a campfire, just lit in a, a candle, uh, you can see that the light is natural to the flame. You don't have to like flip a switch that, that then lights up the room once you've lit the flame. The light is natural. And so as followers of Jesus, like we are supposed to be natural uh, kind of uh, reflectors of God's grace, sharing the light, shining the good news about Jesus and showing each other's 
other people grace as we've been given grace ourselves. Now, what happens when we don't shine out the light? When we're aflame, but we emit no, no light into the room? Uh, this is actually a thing. Apparently, uh, I think it's Indiana 500 race cars are uh, powered by methanol fuel. And if, if you, get, you can actually get in a methanol fuel fire that is completely invisible. Uh, and you can watch these on YouTube, and it's kind of scary because, uh, like, people, a race car driver pulls into the pit, and then they just start thrashing around, jumping out of their race car and running around. It's just like, what, what's, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? It's kind of funny when you watch it until you realize that they are burning alive. And so they spray them just, like, everywhere because they, they can't see the fire. It doesn't emit uh, a flame or, or smoke. And see, when we, as followers of Jesus, when we say we believe in a Savior that loves us, that gives us all sorts of grace, but I'm not willing to give you grace, we're kind of like that flame that doesn't shine the light of Christ. And we're going to burn people. Uh, There's a reason that Christians are often called the most hypocritical, and it's not a good reason. And so we need to remember Christ's grace and the grace that he shows us and he loves us and he extends compassion to us. And that motivates us, that reminds us to extend grace to others, to shine that light of Christ so that we don't burn other people. Grace changes our perspective. Followers of Jesus are surprised by grace. They're seasoned with grace and they shine out grace. And our last little section teaches us that followers of Jesus are successful because of grace. We're successful because of grace. I'm just going to read verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The opponents of Jesus are religious leaders, uh, and they thought that they knew the law. They thought they knew God's commands better than Jesus. And it might have sounded like that because they would say, you know, here's how you're supposed to do it. And Jesus would say, no, that doesn't honor God. You're creating all these, like, silly things that you have to do, very uh, religious, ritualistic, that you have to do in order to please God. But God is much more concerned with the heart. See, Jesus wasn't abolishing the law. He was fulfilling it. He was saying, yes, the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal. But I tell you that if you commit murder in your heart, if you hate someone, or if you think about stealing and you want to do that thing, that's just as wrong. That's just as evil. See, Jesus holds to a much higher view of God's standard than we do. As humans, we tend to come up with any excuse we can to kind of get around God's standard. Well, I didn't steal $100, I took $5. You know, I, I, yes, I don't like that person. I really don't like that person, but I would never hurt them. And Jesus says, no, your heart is what counts. What you think on the inside is just as significant as what you do. But the amazing thing is that Jesus taught this way, but then he also lived this way. See, he lived a perfect life of obedience. He, he never hated someone in his heart uh, the way that we do, that when we sin, he never committed murder, never committed murder in his heart. He, he always did the right thing, 
So he always gave what he needed to give to God. He always showed compassion in the way that he was supposed to show compassion. He fulfilled all of his teachings perfectly. He is truly the culmination of the law. And you know what? He does that for us. In other words, you and I, we get Jesus' obedience, if you trust in him, on your account. So now we don't have to approach God's standards with fear. But we should approach them with respect, saying, Lord, I want to obey you. I want to honor you. Now, if you look at the Ten Commandments, I hope you've heard of the Ten Commandments. Uh, God gave them to the nation of Israel after they came out of bondage in Egypt. So they were in slavery, the prince of Egypt. Watch that if you, if you don't know the story. And one of the first Bible verses at the beginning of the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. So when we think about the Ten Commandments, we usually think of the ten things we're not supposed to do. But the Ten Commandments actually start with a reminder of what God has already done for his people. He brought them out of bondage. He delivered them. And in the same way, Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, kind of this this new grace. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted, for they will inherit eternal life, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, look at all the things God has done for you, if you know Christ. He's done so much on our behalf. And Jesus, likewise, has given us his perfect record as a gift. He gives it to us and says, all right, now go and obey, because you already have my perfect life. One of the reasons we seek to obey Jesus is because we already obey Jesus in Jesus. We already obeyed God in Christ. And so now we just try to live that out because we already did it. It's kind of a mystery, but it's an amazing mystery. There's a pastor in New York, Timothy Keller. He's a church planter, uh, and he kind of put me on to how Jesus fulfills the Beatitudes, but then he gives us the reward. See, Jesus suffered as one who is poor in spirit. He mourned at sin, at death, and evil. When his friend Lazarus died, it says he just cried out. Jesus wept. He was perfectly meek. He was perfectly humble. And Jesus was more hungry and thirsty for God than anyone I ever know. He prayed all night. He was merciful. Jesus was pure of heart. He was a peacemaker, even though he was hated, he was persecuted. See, Jesus lived all of these things in the the Beatitudes absolutely perfectly. And see, Jesus could have, he's the one person who could have taken the rewards. He could have gotten all those rewards from the Beatitudes in this lifetime, but he denied himself. See, Jesus denied himself as he walked the earth. He denied himself the kingdom of heaven. He denied himself comfort as he was crucified. He denied himself power over the earth. Satan tempted him with it, saying, why don't you get in charge? And Jesus said, no, I'm going to deny myself the rewards of what it means to live this way. He denied himself God's mercy so that you and I, so that we could have all of those things. See, we get all these benefits because Jesus didn't. In Christ, you become a king and queen spiritually. In Christ, you are comforted. In Christ, you will one day, if you trust in Jesus, inherit a new heaven and a new earth. 
You will inherit it all, and you will be content, perfectly satisfied forever in Christ because Jesus chose to deny himself those things in this life. See, Jesus fulfills the Beatitudes perfectly, and then he says, do you want the prize? Do you want the gift? Come and trust me. That's why I laid down my life. That's why I lived a perfect life is so that you could receive the benefits of everything I did. So that one day, you will enter into God's presence and you'll say, well done. I have, I, have, I have taken what my son did and I have counted it on your behalf. You are saved. No one could ever take you from my hand. And just remembering that, that all we've been given, that's the highest motivation we can have to obey Jesus, to honor Jesus. There's no higher motivation than love, than grace than a reminder of everything that we've already been given in Christ. Grace changes our perspective. It happens four ways. We're surprised by grace. We're seasoned with grace. We shine out grace, and we're successful because of grace. Grace is uh, like climbing a mountain through no effort of your own. Uh, so unfortunately, I went with Anthony. He could not give me a piggyback ride up the mountain. I would not have wanted him to try that. But when I was, when I was a child and I went hiking with my dad, uh, when I was about five or six, I imagine, my, my dad took uh, the youth group, the church youth group, on hikes, the Rocky Mountains. So I grew up like in the, in the middle of mountains, so it was like five minutes, not the three-hour drive it is here. Uh, and I think my dad took me because he didn't want my me to drive my mom crazy, uh, but he would take me when I was young, and he would put me in his backpack and take me up the mountain and bring me back as well. If you believe in Jesus, God says he has adopted you as your own, as his own. That means that like, as we trust in him, we're the children of God. He's our father, and he does something similar See, he takes us through life on his back, saying, no one's ever going to take you out of my hand. And I will never slip. I will never stumble. You belong entirely to me. And this doesn't mean that on occasion we're not going to walk along too, but we're always going to be grasping our Father's hand. It's always him who leads us to the top of the mountain that will one day lead us home. We will never, ever outgrow our need for our Father's love. And if there is one thing that is absolutely true, it's that the view from our father's backpack is always better than our view from the ground. Our view from our father's shoulder from grace, it's a much better view than when we look at the world and think of all the things that we've done wrong. We just look at your father. Look at Christ. Grace changes our perspective. Let me pray. Father God, I pray that you would change perspective with grace. Help us see life through your eyes. Help us see life through what Christ has already done on our behalf, and let that be a motivation for us as, as we become more and more indebted to grace. Every good thing we do, Lord, is just a gift from you. We can never work ourselves out of our grace debt, Lord. I pray for the offering. God, it's a, it's a, a simple way to give you what you have already given us. And so, Lord, would we give our tithes and our offerings graciously to you. 
Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.